You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Robin? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, making some time today to talk about um, you know Labrador, one of the spots that is a one, another one of those famous spots. I think we haven't talked much about it. We've heard a lot about it. But I haven't had a lot of guests on, so I think today we're going to break down that a little bit, understand what that's about. Talk about your lodge. Um, you guys have this great lodge. John Gerrock has noted your lodge when he was on the show last time. But um, but before we get there, take us into fly fishing, and, and how did you get into it? What was your first memory? Okay, well, right before I do that, the uh, the name of the lodge is Three Rivers Lodge. The website is trophylabrador.com. Perfect. But we're called Three Rivers Lodge, and that's because there's three rivers that feed into the main river right where we put the main lodge, and hence the name Three Rivers Lodge. Anyway, yes, I, um, I've i been a fly fisherman off and on my whole life, uh, like most people, high school and college, and starting a family and a business pretty much took all my time away from fly fishing. Some people are fortunate enough to squeeze it in, but I wasn't. But when I was a kid, I did some fly fishing. I grew up in East Tennessee in North Georgia. And then uh, I piled around with mostly with my brother, Chris. Uh, I had two older brothers that one of them did some fishing and the other one did math products, math, <laughs> math computation. But anyway, so we got going there. I uh, caught my first, well, I didn't catch it actually. I hooked my first brook trout on the, on the mossy banks of uh, Teleco Creek in East Tennessee uh, with a wand of, of, uh, of a maple stick that I cut a fly that the fellow who was teaching me tied from a feather he pulled from his pillow nice so that was my first first trout and i went on through that and we did quite a bit of fishing all through my younger years my dad used to take us up to blue ridge lake and we'd camp out and fish the lake etc and uh then as i said it pretty much all put it down through high school college and early family years and uh i had a son in 1978 and my wife unbeknownst to her what she was getting my end to gave me a fly rod for my first father's day and so the uh the passion opened back up quickly and ferociously and i got to it big time there so. you go there you go and and when did you make the move from um you know where down kind of that area up to uh into canada yeah, right when my son was born, I had to get a real job. At the time, I was an aspiring professional golfer who didn't have the game to make it. And my wife was a flight attendant, and when she got pregnant, she had to quit her job, and I had to get a real job. So we moved to Boston, where I had friends, to the Boston area. And uh, we lived there for 37 years, and 
And uh, 10 years ago, when I retired, I moved to, I bought a farm up in northern Vermont where we, where we live now. So, Oh, wow. There you go. Right. New England was my fly fishing uh, base. I fished, you know, mostly Maine and New Hampshire, a little bit in Vermont. And, uh, and when we, uh, when things started getting crowded on the rivers, particularly back in like the early 90s, when we all know what happened and fly fishing became very popular, we kept finding, my brother and I was my fishing buddy, we kept finding people in our favorite holes and we would say, okay, we'll beat them, we'll get there at four o'clock in the morning and we would <laughs> at four in the morning and they had camped out overnight. So finally we said, hell with this, we're going to go somewhere wild and and we went to Alaska back in the mid 80s and um we found there were just as many people on the river in Alaska as there was in Maine. So um, a couple of years after that, my brother said, hey, I hear there's a big brook trout in Labrador and there's nobody there. You want to go? And I said, hell yeah, brother, let's go. So we went to early 90s. We went to Labrador and um, I've been there ever since. Wow. That's it, man. That's a great story. And why do you, th- you know, with Labrador versus Alaska, I'm not sure what Labrador is like now, but why do you think there's so, there isn't as many people in Labrador? Is it just the, the country thing sort of deal versus like, say, Alaska? Yeah. First of all, it's not a part of the United States. It's in Canada. So Alaska being in the U.S. makes a lot of things easier. Um, just try and open a business in a country that you're not a citizen of and you'll find out. But anyway, you know, Alaska just been, you know, the dream place to go, you know, for so long. And uh, so many lodges have been built up there. And then the float planes, I think 90% of all the de Havilland beavers in the world are in Alaska, something like that. And, and you know, you go around the corner and, uh, you know, my brother and I went to a really well-known lodge there and they had, and we picked the outpost camp just so we'd make sure we didn't even have lodge members there. But, you know, kind of every bend in the river we went around, there was a plane sitting there or an, another boat. And uh, but when you when you go to Labrador, there is nobody. It's uh, I think there's thirty seven thousand people live the in, in the entire. Oh, it's half of it's right. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador are the same province. Newfoundland is an island off the coast and Labrador is on the mainland. But there's like two cities. There's Churchill Falls and Lab City and Wabush, which is twin cities, little twin towns. And there's nobody anywhere else. There's, you know, a few of the Aboriginal, the Innu and the Nascope. You'll see them scattered around occasionally because they get out and do some hunting and fishing. But, um, you know, it's all to yourself. And, you know, in my lodge and I think most all the other lodges there, too. When you go out with your guide, we guide, you know, two anglers per guide. And when you go out that's all you see the whole day. I mean, you don't see anybody else unless you want to, you know, just, you know, as long as you got some a diversity of fishing spots, like we do, we fish over a hundred miles of river and we have a float plane to get fly the long legs to get there. So anyway, uh, it's, there's nobody there. It's, it's hard to get there. It's like when people fly over, they say it's 50% water, but I think it's technically only 20% water, but it looks like 50% water. And and what's not water is a lot of it's bogs and bald granite. And you, building roads in there is just nigh on impossible. So there are places, the places that had easy access that had iron ore are, are where the uh, where the, the towns are now. Oh, and right. I'll get around the iron mines, right? Yeah, I yeah, gotcha. Wow. So a yeah, you, wilderness. it's wilderness. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's basically similar to Alaska or probably a lot of Canada. 
you know, right. it's, it's hard to get up there. And, uh, and you guys built this place. What was that like building the lodge and, and why, you know, I mean, did you right away hop up there for a trip or two and realize, like, think like, Hey, this could be something or how'd the lodge come to be? Yeah. Well, I went to another lodge, uh, and got to know the manager and one of the guides there particularly well, who wound up being partners with me in a new lodge. And, you know, one day, uh, the manager called and said, um, Hey, uh, I'm going to open up a new lodge next summer. I want you and your brother and your friends to be our first guests. And I said, Kenny, come on. You told me I was going to be a part of this. Remember, we talked about this over and over because I wanted to be like a timeshare partner. And uh, he said, nah, nah, we got all the finance and no problem. And I said, okay, well, I'll round them all up. And a couple of weeks later, he called back and said, you still want to get on on that lodge? (laughs) I guess the money wasn't quite as easy as he thought it was. Right. So anyway, so I came in as a, you know, as a uh, one third owner and uh, intended to just do that to come up a couple of weeks. And, you know, I was a builder. So I designed the cabins and ordered the materials list and did all that kind of stuff and helped with the logistics. And uh, but, you know, one of my other partners wasn't quite as invested as I was and made a lot of people angry, particularly the person that we were buying the lease from. And uh, it kind of all fell apart a month before our first guests were to arrive. So uh, I got more involved and kind of have been the managing partner ever since. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and it sounds like you've been doing a great job because you're getting lots of, um, lots of good testimonials and recommendations. Do you, what do you feel like, um, you know, makes a successful lodge. I mean, you've been doing it a while now. Uh, is it, you got the spot for sure. You know, I know it's not easy, right? The weather and everything, but what is it? How, how have you been successful? It's, uh, I'm, I live in a little town in Northern Vermont. That's really a farm town. It's I'm dairy farmers all around me. And when I first moved up here, one of the farmers walking down the road, I pulled over just to say hello and introduce myself and he said, yeah, you bought a farm. I said, yeah, I bought a farm. I'm going to try to activate it. And he said, well, let me tell you something about farming. When you really got something down and it's going great and something happens really bad, you know you're a farmer. So that's kind of like it is being an outfitter. Gotcha. You know, you, There's so much that you cannot control. And you do your very best and you hope and you pray and you, you know, increase your odds and, you know, manipulate. And but there's just things that happen that you that are beyond your control. And and that's that's what makes it the hardest to stay in business, to stay viable and this and to continue to create a good product. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's not always easy. And and so. And we're going to get into some of the details of the lodge itself, but, um, you know, I'm interested in this because, you know, you built something really cool here. What And through the rough times, you know, like you stayed there, what, what keeps you there? What, what keeps you, you know, like not folding in the shop when things get tough? COVID hits, right, three years ago and all that stuff. Right. Yeah, that was, that was a, uh, an adventure. I don't know what's kept me in it. I think what's kept me in it, I'm just, I'm a good enough businessman to have got my kids through college. And, and and our family on vacation every year with my contracting business, but I'm not a good enough businessman to have planned an exit strategy when I got in the lodge. So what kept me in it really was I had no exit strategy, and and life was changing. Life was changing a lot. Um, it's kind of really difficult to explain the different the the changes in people's idea about what a good life is. 
in terms of part of it being away from civilization for three months a year. Back uh, when we started, there were, everybody wanted to become a timeshare member. Everybody wanted to, to buy into it. They wanted a part of it. Let's open another lot. It's just, you know, and now it was really hard. In 2015, I decided I was going to start trying to find a way to move on because I was about to retire and I was going to, well, I had retired and, uh, and I bought this farm and I'm gone all summer. So it's, um, well, my, my son and I are, are growing organic apples for the hard side business. And I'm gone all summer and, and he needs help, you know, and I wanted to be here. And so I started trying to figure out a way to get out. And it's just really hard to find people who want to commit to that kind of a life and also that have, you know, a little bit of money to buy it because it's not a lot, a lot. But, you know, you got to have something. Yeah, you got to have something. Anyway, right. Right. So, uh, you know, and it took, well, to be honest with you, this is probably going to air after it happens. But I'm closing this coming Thursday and selling the place. So it's uh, it's taken me eight years to find a good buyer. Oh wow! So you you're actually selling the the lodge, right? Right. That's nobody knows that but you and me and the buyers. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. I forgot the attorneys. The attorneys all know it. Yeah. The attorneys. Are, so you're selling the lodge. So the lodge is still going to be there, just under a different ownership. Correct. And I'm going to be involved with it for a, a nice changeover period. Yeah. Good. Oh wow. Oh, this is exciting. I mean, this is like, this is a really cool story. So, and remind us again, when is the date when this will be, if uh, people will know about it officially? Well, as soon as the deal's done, because you don't know until, you know, the everything's signed, uh, I'll be sending, I, I write a, a very few newsletters every year and and I, I send them out. Yeah, those are good. Those are good. I, I read some of those on your blog, or I think there may be some older ones, but th- those were great. Yeah, and... So I'll have I have a newsletter all ready to go, you know, to let everybody know that there's going to be new owners and they're they're fortunate and they're they're from Newfoundland, so they're Canadians, Newfoundland citizens, and they're going to find it a lot easier. Um, one of the main things is their taxes will be a lot lower. Oh, right. Than non-Canadian taxes, but anyway, yeah, they're really it's a father and son team. The son is a guide and a businessman, and the father owns several businesses and. They are uh, they're they're very very um, warm and welcoming people. I think the big thing that I worry about is you asked me earlier what it takes to be successful, and quite frankly, it's to create a culture that people feel at home, like the moment they step off the float yeah, plane, that's and uh, creating a culture and keeping the the staff and all about it. You know the uh, the accommodations and of course. One of the first things is always serve really good food. Never, never scrip on the food. It's mostly, you know, people walk in the dining lodge when they first get there and they know they, they're part of a new family. And uh, that's really a great credit to the folks that who've spent so many years working with us and trying to make it. I mean, every one of my guides and the two ladies in the kitchen staff, you know, feel like, it's their it's their business too, you know. I mean, they I, I can't even describe how wonderful they all are, and and they have been through all the years. I mean, we've had some bad apples, like everybody else. They don't last long, and um, but it's a real credit to the staff and and the culture we created there. Amazing, so. amazing. This is great. Well, it's good to hear um, you're able to uh, kind of move on to the next adventure. And it sounds like you have some cool things going with your son in the farm and stuff. So, but let, let's talk about the lodge a little bit. I want to hear more about, you know, why 
you know, like I said, John Gearock uh, kind of recommended it uh, when he was on here and just what may, well, I mean, obviously you have it in your, the domain of your site, Trophy Labrador, right? I mean, we're talking big brook trout. I guess we start there. Is that where this all starts as these big giant brook trout? Yes, we originally, we were also in, from the middle of August through September, we hunted caribou. It's a long story, and probably listeners who are fly fishermen aren't interested, but the caribou herd basically disappeared, and in 2008, uh, there was no more hunting allowed for the George River caribou herd. It basically disappeared. We went from 750,000 animals down to almost nothing in a matter of about five or ten years. Wow. And they have no, still don't know what, I mean, like migrated on or died? Yeah, they they. Uh, the few that were remaining migrated to the west and joined the Leaf River herd, which is over in western Quebec. They think, you know, a lot of people say they ate themselves out of food, which is not true. Most most biologists, there was um, the things that they know was there was ninety five percent calf mortality, and there and the, the females, the fertile females, were normally seventy five percent carrying calves, only twenty. 25% were carrying calves. Mm, so like climate change or something like that change. And in- that's exactly right. When the calves are born, they can't, they, the herd couldn't get far enough North to get out of the biting insects, right? Because the biting insects are hatching earlier because the weather was warming and the little calves can't take the biting insects. It drives them crazy and they leave their moms and can't find their moms oh, and wow. fall off a cliff or predators or whatever. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing. Um, here's the interesting thing that two biologists who came to camp and we talked for quite a while about it. The big thing is, did hunting impact the the demise of the herd? And most people say, well, you just can't. There was 750,000 animals. And what do we kill? 5,000 animals a year, maybe? No, or 10,000, even if you killed 100,000, right? But what happens is the females... The females band together in like groups of 20 or so, and they pick a male. The male does not pick the females, and they will only pick a male who has a nice, big, beautiful set of antlers. And when you kill all the ones that have pretty antlers and all the rest of what they call hockey sticks because they're just kind of stubs, then females are not attracted and they don't mate. Wow. So that's the way... The, the the way that the biologists feel like hunting impacted it was that we kill the desirable males right and take them out of the picture God. so so anyway hence the name trophy labrador you could catch a trophy brook trout and you can kill a trophy caribou wow wow yeah that's and i will i just want to highlight because and i see you said hunting i mean we have about probably half of the people listening now are, are hunters as well you know lots of diversity and we did an episode with Hal Herring with uh, backcountry hunters and anglers just recently, and he talked. We it was a great episode. He talked about all the challenges and you know these types of stories. You know, even going back to the you know the American buffalo right back in right. The, the U.S. The history of that whole thing. But you know, I think it was a positive. Uh, it's always it's always hard when you hear these things because it sounds really negative. But I still feel like even the people that know, there's some stuff we can do. And, right. um, and so I like to keep it on a positive note, but that is a crazy story. We'll have to follow up on that a little bit and see if maybe that changes right. um, down the line. But, um, but yeah, so, so the trophy lodge, so, so talk about that. So you, the caribou are not in the picture now, but these brook trout are, what, what are these trophy describe them a little bit? How big is a trophy brook trout? Well, a, a trophy brook trout, you know, is a four pound trout. Most people will tell you a five pound brook trout, but a four pound trout is, 
a remarkable animal. You just don't find them anywhere. Down here in New England and in a lot of places, you know, there's always the occasional big fish. But, but uh, you know, if you catch a four-pound brook trout, it's a remarkable fish. Four pound, like over twenty inch, like inch wise. What yeah. roughly would that? What would that be? A four pound would probably be twenty twenty one inches by ten or eleven inches in girth. Yeah, big oh, fat. Yep. Right. And um, well, can I just drop back for just a second? Yeah. Yeah. To where I was telling you when we when I started got involved in the lodge, there was a on our river, which is called Woods River, which is quote unquote, too far away from town to have a viable business. There was two cabins by a man and his son named Bruce Wolfrey and Bruce built the cabins in 1991 and they had guests in 91, two and three. They had a total of 17 guests, 12 of whom were the same four guys that came up for three years. And in 94, his son got killed. His son was a pilot and had a plane. And his son got killed. He got hit by a snowplow. And so Bruce lost all of his interest in the place. And that's what we bought. We bought his lease that he had already gotten from Crown Lands. That's like mm. our national forest in Canada, called Crown Lands. Yep. And so we bought it from him. So that's the way we started. So we renovated those two cabins and we built like seven, more, eight more. You know, we built a dining lodge and bigger camps and guides camps and a boathouse and manager's camp and all that stuff. So we did all all that in 98 and 99. So that's kind of when we got started. So it was a camp there before we did. And the, I told you the four, there was four fellows in the Boston area where I was from and um, that had been up there. And one year they went up for a month and they just explored Labrador requires you to hire a guide, but I don't think they even had a guide. Uh, they just flew them in there and, and gave them the, the enough gas for the motor on the canoes, and that's what they did. But I, I used to I, – I had a lot of dinner lunches with those guys trying to pick their brains about all the places they went so I could figure out where some of the good places to go fishing were. But anyway. Uh, they came up to Three Rivers after we changed it over to, and we had a really good week up there kind of reminiscing and uh, – they didn't like the improvements we made, but who would, you know, they, they've got these three years of great memories of living in a little cabin in the middle of nowhere all by themselves. Oh, right. Everything, right. So you made it a little bit bigger and better for more, more people, right? That's yeah, what exactly. I mean. And nicer. Yeah, exactly. A quick break for a word from our sponsor, Smitty's fly box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty subscription fly box. If you need a unique fly selection for a new water you're fishing, or if you want to get started fly tying the easy way, Smitty's has you covered. They will find out where you're fishing and supply you with a custom fly assortment. And Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, and you may not realize it, but Smitty's is connected to Round Rocks, who is the sole supporter to Sportsman's Warehouse and has tied and supplied millions of flies over the years i was at sportsman's this week and picked up a couple a dozen flies some chubby small and large dry flies some terrestrial patterns the quality was exceptional that's one of my struggles is the dry flies so i love looking at these little guys from small little tiny flies that i can barely see with my eyesight's the big ones and these are the same people who are delivering and tying these flies to your door with smitty's fly box it's a great time right now to get stocked up for the season. You can head over to smittysflybox.com right now to take a look at their selection of flies and monthly boxes right now. Let Smitty's take the guesswork out of choosing fly materials and patterns right now. This is also an easy way to support this podcast and a small business 
who has been producing high-quality flies for many years. Check them out right now. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. Okay, back to the show. Well, talk about, so if people are coming up, let's see somebody's listening now and they're thinking about, you know, Labrador is definitely on the bucket list for many people. Right. And and so what does it look like putting this trip together? Do they, is it your typical kind of Alaska Lodge where you fly and you spend like six days sort of thing? Or do you do like a diverse kind of hybrid sort of, of approach there? No, that's it. We, we do week-long trips. Seven days in camp, six days of fishing because there's a changeover day. And uh, yeah, we work. We go from the last two weeks in June through the end of August, so we have ten weeks of summer. That's it. Uh, on the either side of that, the ice is on the lakes, and the float planes can't land. So uh, we we have you know the, we do we have a work week or maybe sometimes two weeks before guests get there. So we we try to get in in early June. We usually able to get in by June seventh. One year we didn't get into June twenty fourth, and our first guest came on June twenty first, but we had to cancel that week, obviously, and filter them in on, through the rest of the year. But anyway, so that's uh, it's it's a limited season. You just you know you get yourself to a little town called Wabush, Labrador. Air, uh-huh. Air Canada and Provincial Airlines fly there, and you get there and spend the night, and we pick you up at the hotel and the next morning and fly you in on a float plane into camp. It's a 150 miles from Wabush into our camp. And uh, you get off the plane and spend, you know, a week in the nice cabins, two person cabins with full amenities and all that. And, and you go out fishing with a guide every day and, you know, you catch a brook trout. It's just a really great thing. But the, like I said, the front porch and the after dinner in the sitting room, with drinks and the stories that we pry out of each other and share, you know, it's, that's kind yeah. of the, the that's big it. deal. But the nice thing is, is, you know, and the fishing is, you know, everyone will know about fishing and John has been a, John Girock has been a great ambassador for us and, and his stories. Well, let me, I guess I should, before I tell you about that, I should tell you about John. Yeah. This is the, one of the best stories. Okay, good. That I got. <laughs> Uh, Chris and I, I read a book by James Babb, Jim Babb, who was the editor of Gray Sporting Journal. Uh-huh. And if you haven't uh, interviewed him on a podcast, then you're going to ask me for a recommendation. Oh, good. Jim is one of the wittiest, brightest men in, on the face of the earth, and you would absolutely adore. Nice. Anyway, he he was born in East Tennessee, close to where my brother and I were. And his his life kind of followed mine, Da-da-da, went to the service I went to college. He only finished ninth grade, but uh, he didn't need to go to school, as you you find out. Maybe I hope you'll find out. Anyway, he wound up in Maine, and I wound up in Massachusetts. So I just out out of the blue, I just I, he had a new book out called Cross Currents, my fishing book, and uh, I read that and saw that we kind of had parallel lives. So I, I just dropped him an email. I said, "Hey, I got a new fly fishing lodge in Labrador. I'm, uh, would you like to come up, you know, and and fish it with us? I know you like brook trout from reading your book." And uh, he answered me right away and said, that'd be great. If you can do it early in the season, you know, I'd love to come up. So I called my brother and said, hey, Jim's going to come up, you know. And, and, you know, at the time he was writing articles for Gray Sporting Journal as well as editing most of the rest of it. So we said, this is the way this is the way to get the word out. Right. And so uh, two weeks later, uh, I get an email from Jim and it says, any chance I can bring a couple of friends of mine 
And I said, oh, Lord. I called my brother. I said, you know, you give them an inch and they take a mile. <laughs> right. I said, and Chris said, yeah, we'll just call him back and let him down easy. Just tell him, you know, we're booked up and, you know. Right. So I called him back and he answered right away. And I said, hi, Jim, it's Robin. The Three Rivers, I said, uh, so what, what's the deal with these two people you want to bring? He said, listen, I've worked with these people a long time. I've never fished with them. I really like to. And I said, yeah. He said, yes, yeah, John Gearock and AK Best. Oh, wow. And AK too. Right. And I just about, you know, what my pants. So yeah, you're on it. Exactly. So I call my brother back. I said, you won't believe it. But anyway, so that's huh. how it all got started. So John is actually a second cousin removed to Jim and has ancestry mm. back in East Tennessee too. And so the week that we had, I had the fellow that I was on the banks of the Talico River catching my first trout with. He and, a, and another friend of his from East Tennessee, two of my brothers, which grew up in East Tennessee, Jim, who grew up in East Tennessee, and John. Anyway, we had East Tennessee week, the first week in July in, 2000 in 2001. 2001. Exactly. And so that's the first time I got to fish meet Jim, John and Jim and AK and and we got along great. And, you know, John just kept coming back. You know, he, every other year, he he really enjoys brook trout, and he really likes the culture there, uh, the people. He enjoyed the, the, Newfie, the Newfielanders, you know, and, and the young French guides that we had. And I think that one of the reasons that he calls it his second home is because I never sold a trip on his back. I never said, come fish with John Gearock, you know, only no. 49, 50 or, you know, none right. of that. I, nobody ever knew he was going to be in camp until they got on the float plane together. Oh, that's great. Right. Yeah. And I really respected his privacy deeply. Yeah. And I think he respected uh, that a lot about us too. So, yeah. Not an ambassador. That's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. You just, this is a good example. This show right here, right? This is what's cool about all this is that John has been on our podcast a couple of times and he's, right. yeah, ta- you know, it doesn't get bigger, but you know, I didn't know about you guys until he came on and he really right. gave you rave reviews. And I was just like, man, I mean, I'm, you know what I mean? I, I listened to people who are at John's level and, right. and I just had to get you on. So here we are. Exactly. Well, so. it's, you know, and we have a great friendship, our friendship. I see him at the Denver fly fishing show. You know, he stays in the booth when he's not signing books and, you know, we have a meal or two together uh, used to have a smoke together, but unfortunately I quit. Oh, you quit. And he didn't though, did he? No, but I miss it more than I could ever say. I know. I get to go to so, heaven. <laughs> well, how long has it been? How long, Robin, how long has it been since you quit the smoke? I always have, I'm curious about this. How many years? I, I've dead quit a long time ago, but the last time I actually bummed, you know, just bummed yep. one was three years ago. Three years ago. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying, I mean, I didn't smoke, but, um, I chewed Copenhagen for like my whole life and it was so hard. It's still, you know, like it's been 20, well, no, it hasn't been 20 years. It's been like 13 years, but it's still one of those things. The tobacco just is like, man, you could, I could have one right now and it'd be great. It's just this, it's, it's that thing. Tobacco just is tough, but again, right. You got kids and other things you got to think about. So. Exactly. If there's a having cigarettes at 25 cents a pack and they're good for you. Right. Yeah, that's what they told you back in the day, right? When I was in when I was in college at Emory University in Atlanta, uh, we ran up to North Carolina and bought cigarettes for two dollars and ten cents a carton. Oh my god! So it was twenty one cents a pack. Twenty one cents, and now they're whatever ten x that or oh, something. Yeah. Uh, I think they're fifteen dollars here in Vermont. Fifteen dollars, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. 
Yeah, so. Even more in Canada. Right. Yeah, Canada. So, okay, well, I, I think we have, I mean, this John Girock, obviously, he's, uh, he, he's you know, John Girock, but, um, and he comes up there for, I mean, Brook Trout is one thing. I'm trying to get a feel for this because, you know, the Brook Trout that you have down in the lower 48, you know, some of them are small up in these Brook Trout high mountain streams, things like that, and they're really ferocious, you know, they, they take the bug. Is that kind of the same thing with these fish up there, these giant fish? No. You know, John, I got into John by saying that he was a good ambassador for us. But also, you know, he he's in a lot of his books, he said, you know, these really big brook trout, if you catch two or three of them a day, that's a really good day. You know, and it is. I mean, I've had we have had clients who've caught 30 or 40 big brook trout in a day. You know, and we've had a lot of people. Well, what I tell guests at our orientation when they come in is the six days of fishing here, you're going to have two slow days and two days, really good days and two days you'll never forget. And that's kind of the deal because any river is the same. I mean, there's going to be conditions where fish just aren't eating, you know, they right. just aren't eating for whatever reason. And most people catch, most people that come up, even it doesn't really matter how good of a fisherman you are. You're going to be able to catch fish even if you're a ranked beginner because you don't need to be a really good caster. A lot of the rivers, you can just strip line out and let it float down with a streamer on the end of it and strip it back and catch fish. Oh, wow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The fisherman you are, and really not in terms of casting. The casting is important. It is important. But what's really important is your stealth and, and knowing how to read the water and your persistence and your willingness to change flies, because if you don't if you don't want to change flies, you shouldn't come to Labrador, because they're gonna when they're on something that's what they're on, and you don't know what it is. It you know if they're rising to bluing olives, you know that, you know. Or if you see a swarm of sucker minnows, which are kind of like mud green minnows that are two to three inches long, you know, you can put on an olive woolly bugger. That's easy. But oftentimes they're, they're just into something totally different, you know? So you have to be willing to, to try and, and the guides are really good. Um, another one of my smart ass sayings is people will ask me how many fish a good fisherman can expect to catch in a day. And I usually say not as many as a beginner because a beginner will listen to his guide and you won't. So, yeah, that's right. It's uh, the guides are very helpful. And if you're headstrong and think, you know, know it better then you're probably not going to be as successful. But, yeah, you know, everyone's going to catch fish five and six pounds. Almost everyone catch fish is that big. And, you know, you'll have days where you know, might catch one or two fish or, you know, some days that, you know, you can really get good and catch eight or ten nice big fish, you know. Yeah. And. You have feeder creeks if you want to go catch a bunch of small fish and just, you know, have, like you said, in the high mountain streams where they jump on the first thing that hits the water. You know, we have, have that. We have those feeder streams, too, that you can you can do some okay. of that. All right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So. So, yeah, for the big ones, it's kind of like a mix. You know, it's like a almost uh, could be like Atlantic salmon or steelhead fishing where, yeah, you get a few big fish in, in maybe a day. But then exactly. you could have this epic day. I remember John telling a story. I'll put a link in the show notes to that podcast we did with him. The last one, he told this really funny story. I can't remember the question I asked him, but it was something like. You know, um, he was talking about the flies, like at your lodge. And he said he had been there for the six days, seven days. And he had this, he had a really good day. And he was talking about how good it felt that he had the fly that worked that day. I think maybe the guide was telling the story and it was like John's fly. Uh-huh. And it was really cool. It was, it was so John Gearock because he was, 
know, he was explaining it and he was just said he felt really good that he was giving this kid, this guy and his son the fly that worked, right. even though he didn't let anybody know that he felt real good. That's kind of the thing. Like he found one fly that worked. Is that kind of how it looks on a day? You might find that one fly that just boom, that's the fly. And then it works, you know, day after day sort of thing. It is. It is exactly that. I mean, one, one year we had a polar shrimp was like the dynamite fly and, and every pink fly piece of flying tying material in the whole lodge disappeared quickly as everyone was tying polar shrimp and they've never seen a shrimp. There's not even freshwater shrimp. Right. So what was that imitating? Like a, a egg or something like that? I have no idea. I have no idea, but it worked the whole year. One year, uh, uh, John Havlicek, the famous Boston Celtic was, and he and his son were fishing and, and I had just <laughs> caught a fish that, that coughed up, um, about a three or four inch white fish, which just looked like a, a silver minnow, real silver white minnow. So I tied up these big mylar tubing flies that were stiff and unarticulated and they looked terrible, but they worked great. They worked fantastic. And, and John and his son fished with the same fly all week. It wasn't like the same type of fly. It was the same one fly. It was so indestructible. You couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't tear it up. But, and I had, uh, I met a fly tire at one of the shows and I had him tie 10 dozen of them for me. And the next year, you, we uh, could not catch a brook trout on it. They wouldn't even touch it. We caught pike on them. So it, 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 you know, and anything big and on the surface, you know, Labrador, everyone wants to come up and fish mice patterns. Yeah. And mice, there's not any mice, but they're voles. And and they do eat voles, but anything big on the surface of the water skated like, you know, a big wolf pattern skated or unweighted muddler or uh, uh, zonkers, uh, not zonkers, um, uh, uh, gurglers, gurglers. Sorry. Oh, gurglers. Yeah. Yeah. Those foam things. Those are great. Yep. You know. Oh, wow. So you can get a lot of surface, not only just dry fly like a mayfly, but you can just right. do all sorts of crazy stuff. Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, one oh, day yeah. you pull into like our set of rapids and over on a side eddy, they're rising to blue wing, you know, size 17, yeah. 17 blue winged olives. And, you know, they're sipping flies under the alder bushes. So it's, oh, man. it's it's a challenge every day to figure out what's going on. But, you know, you can, you, like I said, if you change flies and listen to the guide, you're going to do really well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what are the streams like there? I, I've seen some photos and things like that. Are there lots of boulders? Describe the water your fish. Is that typical boulders, pool drops, things yep. like that? Right. It's uh, freestone rivers. The Labrador is relatively flat, so there's not a big grade. Like all the rapids, you know, are, would be considered class one rapids if you were coming down it in a raft. Uh, but, you know, the, the rocks are erratic. They move every winter with all the ice. And so the wading is not easy. You need a waiting staff and, you know, good boots. And, uh, but the good news is you really don't have to like get out waist high or something and wade. You can just sort of stay along the edge and cast almost every, you know, reach every part of most every stream. You're painting a really cool picture. So I already see what's separating it. You know, I mean, Alaska, and again, we're not comparing this to Alaska, but, you know, there are, it's not always you're going to find a lot of bugs, mayflies, things like that. Is that something up there where it's just, Every once in a while, or are you throughout the summer seeing hatches of mayflies, caddisflies, stoneflies, stuff like that? Well, there are a lot of hatches. Yes, there are a lot of hatches. They're unfortunately they're not they're not real dependable, right? Oh. And they happen they happen a lot when we're not on the water. The big problem with our whole program, and one that I've thought about changing all the twenty six years I was up there, 
was that, you know, we have breakfast at seven and people eat and go get their waiters on and get in the plane or get on a boat and they go somewhere and they're fishing by nine or nine thirty. And then, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon, they start wrapping it all up, not only because, I mean, usually they're tired, uh, you know, they're, they're worn out. And they head back, you know, and, or they get back to the lodge at five or five thirty and we have they have a shower and drinks and, you know, we have dinner at seven and all the good times we fit uh, to fish. We're not on the water. The best times to fish are from, you know, five in the morning to nine o'clock. And then again, from five in the evening until dark. Oh, right. And why, why the early morning up there? Is that just because before? Yeah. Why would that be up there? Just early? because that's when the hatches are coming off. Oh, the hatches are there. Yeah. And also because the light is low. And um, when the light is low, their fish are much more uh, eager to rise to food, you know, to be moving around and, and feeding. You know, when the, when the sun gets high overhead, you know, they, we have pike that can swallow a five-pound brook trout in one swallow. Oh, wow. We have lake trout that can do the same thing. In the, in the streams? Yes. Well, right at the mouth of the streams, right, right where they're, you know, right where you're cruising around if you're a brook trout looking for food, you know. And we have eagles and ospreys. And if you look closely, I don't think you can catch a fish in our whole river system that doesn't have talon marks on its back. Oh, wow. Or maybe pike, you know, jaw. Uh, sure. Tooth scrapes. Right. Exactly. Uh, they're usually healed. They're not gaping wounds. You know, you occasionally. No, that's really cool. But um, one time we were going, I was down going down with my daughter and the guide. We were taking the canoe down through what we call our second rapids, which is kind of broad and shallow. And I saw, and the, it's very known for what we call a foam pool. It's a pool where kind of a back eddy and where the foam all collects. And when the foam collects there, also the insects collected that are floating. Foam is home. Foam is home, right? Exactly. But this, the water was really low. This was late in August. We were going down to close our outpost camp. And we saw, when we went around the corner, we could see down to the rapids, uh, Kevin, the guide, said to me, look, there's two guys fishing down there. And we looked down, and it was looked like two people waded out in the middle of the ri- river fishing. As we got closer, we could see that it wasn't people. It was two immature bald eagles. They were fully sized, but they weren't didn't have white heads yet. Uh, they don't get that till three or four years old. That's right. And the foam pool was no longer connected to the river. It, the water was so low, it was just like a little pond. And in that pond, there were four brook trout, two, three, four pounds with talon barks and blood coming out of their backs. The eagles had taken them out of the river and stored them in the little pool over on the left. Oh, wow. Uh, for, for future use. So, oh, my God. Uh, about smart animals. You know, right. We had never seen anything like that before. But, uh, but they, are, you know, they take a lot of fish. And, and they, you know, the ospreys a lot of times will hit a fish, and it's hard, you know, an eagle will take a fish usually on the fly when they're close to the surface, but an osprey hits the water and stays on the water. Grab, and once it's grabbed the fish, it tries to take off. So it's got the water pulling against it as well as the weight of the fish. And it's really hard. They got great big, long, broad wings. And to watch them try to take off is just an amazing thing when they've got a fish. But if it's too big, I, if it's a five pound, six pound fish, they just let it go because they can't get off. Oh, right. Right. But anyway, God, that's so cool. That, I mean, this is amazing. The picture that you're painting here just with the eagles. And I have heard about that with birds of prey that in some of these high mountain lakes around the country, they, 
they grab them and then drop them in these places where there are no fish. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, so they're smart. Yep, exactly. Back here with Daniel from Northern Rockies Adventures, and he's going to share some more Northern BC fishing tips. How are you doing, Daniel? Doing great. And today we're talking trout. Pretty excited. Yeah, it's always good to talk trout, uh, trout talk. So uh, today's going to be the headline is the trifecta of trout. So let's talk about what the trifecta is up to Northern uh, BC, where we're going to be heading to meet you. So I I really like uh, what everyone thinks of trout, you know, rainbow trout. uh, That's just kind of the main species everyone's fishing up here. But uh, what's interesting is we have two other species. So we have the bull trout, which uh, was actually a, a landlocked Dolly Varden. And then we have the uh, the lake trout, which is uh, is actually in the char family, and probably the most underappreciated of the two here, or of the three. It's such a variety of trout; they all have unique angling opportunities and experiences. Um, it's it's pretty fun to to target all of them. If anybody wants to follow up further on this, we can, we'll send them out to nradventures.com slash wetflyswing. And we also have an episode coming up with you December 20th, 2023. This will be episode 540, where we're going to talk everything, trout, and just everything you have going up there in Northern Rockies. So until then, Daniel, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Dave. Pleasure. So this brook trout thing is amazing. I mean, everything you're talking about is just trip of a lifetime, you know, sort of thing. But you, you also have pike and other species. Are people actually going up there and are you fishing for pike too? Oh, yes, we do. Pike are always fun. Like on an afternoon, you, like I said, when you quit at four o'clock and you're on, on your way back, you know, put a a, a wire a, a bite guard, steel tip it on and throw a great big streamer on and just pull into a cove and splash it up against the shore in the water lilies and watch these things just come screaming from 30 feet away and make a big wake and just explode on your fly. And then they make this incredible run and run you right out to your backing. And then they roll over and pretend that's it. dead. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. And are you guys doing this? And you mentioned the canoes. Are you doing a little floating and walk and wade fishing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. The canoes, we, we get we get around in the canoes. They're, they're big freighter canoes with the 15 Honda horse on the back of them. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, so we run the, you know, run the smaller lakes and we run up and down the rapids and the guides would just walk you right down the rapids. You know, a lot of our demographic are, you know, 70, even 80 year old people who really can't wade. And, uh, well, unfortunately, there's a lot of 40 and 50 year old people who haven't, are, aren't in very good shape to wade. And they'll just back, just back the canoe right down the rapids, you know, and then, you know, let you fish right out of the canoe or get out on a flat rock and, and fish the area around that and then travel down a little further. So, you know, you can wade or you can stay in the boat, either one and still fish the rapids. But, uh, but the pike are in the flat water and usually in the coves and usually in a cove where a little stream feeds into the lake because that's where they'll find a lot of fish activity to eat. And then we've got, uh, we've also got lake trout, you know, that are, I mean, we've got lake trout and, you know, 35, 36 pounds lake trout. Wow. So they're, they, they can eat a lot of brook trout too. Right. And they're kind of our laker. I mean, they're kind of down deeper. They harder to catch. They're down deep. When you first get there, they're up in the mouth of the of the rapids, and some are even up in the rapids. We've uh, so many times we've thought we've caught. We know we've got the world record brook trout. We finally caught one bigger than fourteen pounds, and it turns out to be a lake trout that was up sipping mayflies in the middle of one of the rapids. You know, so sure. they'll come up in the spring, 
and uh, and then again when the water cools in the uh, in in the late in late in August, they'll come back up and onto the shallow shoals in the lake, and you can just on the boat, cast up on the shoals, and bring a fly back and just and really hammer the lake trout. Gotcha. And they are really powerful. They're not like the pike at all. I think they fight better than the brook trout. Maybe they're not quite as um, the stamina the brook trout has, but pretty close. Pretty close. I bet they're but they're bigger for the most part. What is the largest? Um, so what is the the like brook trout? What's the largest? What's the world record on brook? World record's 14, eight, 14 and a half pounds. Well, by a doctor in the Nipigon River in 1916, I think. Yep. All right. So that's good. So what's the largest fish you guys have seen up there? Our biggest fish that we've caught is a little over 11 pounds. We, in 26 years, we've caught three fish, 10 pounds or better. Right. We caught a load of eight and nines, but only three, 10. The tens. Uh, right. Uh, double digits beggar. Uh, we caught, yeah, one ten six, one ten eight, and one eleven three. Everything's got to be perfect for a trout to get that big. You know, they have to be lucky with the pred- predators, and uh, they have to be uh, just, you know, in, in the right place at the right time because there's a lot of predation. That's why they're big. If you're not big, you, you, you're just gone, Right. So they stay in the small feeder streams or nursery creeks is what we call them until they get to be, you know, a pound and a half, two pounds. And, and once they get that big, they can venture out and, and, uh, well, I should tell you real quick, the life of a, of a Labrador brook trout, they live to be 10 years up in Labrador. That's the max in Maine, New Hampshire and Vermont and New England, they'll only live to be five years. And they really don't know quite why, but they live to be. So what they do is when they're three years old, they're a pound and a half. When they're four years old, they're four pounds. Because when they get to be a pound and a half, they stop eating all the stuff that's growing on rocks and they start eating other fish. And that's when they put on their massive weight gain is in their fourth year. So they go from a pound and a half, two pounds up to four pounds in one year. And then after that, they add about a pound a year if everything's healthy. You know, unless they have like wicked, crazy weather, uh, whatever. But so a 10 pound fish is a 10 year old fish. So that's, uh, that's basically the way it works. So you're catching, you know, uh, uh, we, we tagged fish and 2009, 10 and 11, we tagged fish with a biologist. They had been on my case for years to come, uh, uh, do research on our river because they kept hearing good things about it. And they had, were hearing things about other rivers where they weren't faring as well as ours. And the trout were on, on the decline big time. And I tried to remind them that the reason was, was because those other rivers had lodges on them that let you kill fish. And we didn't, but they wanted to do more research than that. Anyway, we tagged, uh, we tagged 1100 fish in, the first three weeks of three consecutive years. And so we learned an awful lot about brook trout from being able to catch those tag fish in different places and different sizes and so forth and so on. We found how much travel, which is a lot. How did you tag those fish? Like what sort of tag and did they like track them with radio telemetry or something like that? No, no, none of that. It's just a little tag that goes right behind their dorsal fin, goes in their dorsal fin right at the backside of it. Oh, just like a plastic flag uh, sticking out of its body. Like the yeah, like the tags on your shirt when you buy it. Next thing, right, right, right. 
and it's yep. just a little uh, like a, a little thin cylindrical thing with a number on it. And, uh, you know, that we had purple, yellow and orange for each year. And so we would catch them and we record all that. The guides had a great time. I mean, they really enjoyed it. And we caught the last one in 2016. Was it 2016? So that we caught and and it was a disappointment because it was tagged the last year within 2011. So it, we it was tagged five years later. And when we tagged it, it was three pounds. And when we caught it, it was only four pounds. So it didn't fare well, which was weird. It, it, in five years, that only gained a pound. So it was uh, it was mixing it in with the wrong fish. Uh, feeding stations are hierarchical. The bigger fish get the better stations, and they run your ass out. If they, all right. So it, there's a lot there's a lot of you know the social life of brook trout are is are as complex as they are of humans. Right. Yeah, that's that's great. No, I love that you went into that. That's so you basically tracked these fish and found that. Uh, Amy, what it was that other than that, did, anything else you learned from that five years or so of tagging? Yes, big time. It was three years we tagged, right? Oh, three. Yeah. We, yes, we learned a lesson. We tagged a fish one time at Second Rapids. I'm sorry, at Fifth Rapids. A day later, we caught it at seven at Second Rapids, which was almost 12 miles upriver. Mm. Two days after that, we caught it back at Fifth Rapids again. So the question comes up, it begs the question, as they say, why would a fish travel 12 miles upstream one day, spend two days there, and go back, you know, two days later? Yeah. It's got to be food source. That's the only answer. Yeah. It's not spawning season. We're in the spring, so they're not anything to do with spawning. Yeah. You know, and, and we've, we, we tagged fish that we caught 40, 50 miles upstream from where we tagged them. You know, uh, it's just a lot of movement. The biggest thing... What two, the two big things that we learned was oftentimes you'll see big five, six, seven pound fish sitting under in a foot of water under the alders, just stationary. And you can throw anything at them and they will not move toward any fly. And you push them with the end of your fly rod and they just come right back to where they are. Right. Never could figure out what the hell was going on with that. And this young woman who was the biologist said they just they just ran the lake the night before. He said when they run the lakes, you know, the lakes are, you know, anywhere from five to 15 miles long between the rapids. And they run them at night and they run them full speed or else they get bitten. They get eaten. All right. And so when they come up, they're just full of lactic acid. So they have to pull over in a sheltered area where big pike can't get to them and just let all the lactic acid dissipate for a day or two or three. And then they go back to their normal, you know, habits. But that's what wow. that's what it is. So that was really uh, uh, enlightening to me, because I, I I just kept hearing these stories. You know, what are they just lying under the alders for? You know. Yeah. But the wow. biggest thing was was sometimes the guides when we would have slow times, right? Sometimes the guides would back come back and say, you know, I think at at Vizina Rapids, which is our one of our biggest rapids. There's only like 20 fish that live there. We just keep catching them over and over and over again. And then maybe at first rapids, there's only 12 fish. And at second rapids, there's 20 more. You know, they just thought there was just very limited number of fish. And we just kept hammering them over and over again. So the good news is in 2012, I put it to them. I want to know every fish that we that we tagged. We Remember, we tagged 1,100 fish. Yep. And of and in 2012, in the first three weeks, when that was the year we stopped tagging, 
only one out of 24 fish that we caught had a tag on it. Amazing. Right. Which made the guides, gave the guides really true belief in the incredible quality of the fishery in the Woods River. And that was important because, you know, if, if you don't believe in what you're doing, you know, you're not going to do it as well. And uh, yeah. to me, that would be something that a guest may not, you know, they might like the stories about, you know, running a long way or whatever, uh, traveling. But to me, it was the confidence that they put into the guides that was the greatest thing. Right. The, the fact that the, these were basically their fresh fish moving around all the time coming yes, in from exactly. other areas. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a lot of fish out there. So. A lot of fish. So these fish, and like you said, they were, they would be feeding at one point in the river and then they would make their migration during the night up into the lake to feed there. Right. And then they would again travel at night and they had to go fast to, to, to uh, avoid predators. Exactly. Why? Exactly. God, that's great. That's probably similar to, I'm sure other areas around the country. We've talked about a lot of streamers and fish, different species, but doing the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really interesting because, um, you know, this is this is brook trout. I haven't talked about giant brook trout. What, uh, you know, for that area up there, do you see, have you seen changes in population? I mean, we've talked about this down in Maine where we've had some guests come on that said, you know, that they're really thinking brook trout are really pessimistic, thinking like, hey, they're going away because of right. all the climate change. Have you seen any changes in that in recent years? I have. I have. And uh, this past year, we had a heat wave unlike any that we've had in the 26 years I've been there. Uh, the first and second week of July, it was 90 degrees and the water warms up quickly because it's, it, all the water comes out of the sky. We don't have aquifers. It filters through peat bogs and it comes into the rivers and streams and lakes stained with tannins. So it's kind of tea colored, right? The water and that tea color water really absorbs solar energy rapidly so we can see a rise of five to eight degrees in one day, one sunny day on the lake. Not quite that much on the rivers, but on the lake, that's how much it can go up. So when it's 90 degrees for two weeks in a row, we had we had one creek that we measured. The temperature was 80 degrees. Oh, wow. Now, brook trout cannot live when it's 72 degrees. It will, the water will not hold enough oxygen to keep them alive. We uh, what we had to do for these two weeks was we we moved breakfast up an hour earlier. We got people right out the door. We went out and fished in the morning. But when the water they were fishing hit 65 degrees, we quit and we took them to catch for pike and whitefish and lake trout on the flat water. And of course, all the guests, you know, who are to the person, great sportsmen, all understood that completely. And matter of fact, encouraged that we do that. And so they did. They didn't feel like it ruined the trip, and they were able to catch some really nice brook trout, and uh, and quite a few of them were all returning guests, so they knew what the deal was there anyway. But um, it was uh, that's that's the kind of thing that it worries me a little. Yeah. What? How much is this going to happen in the future? In the future, we yeah. Had hot days before a day or two, but nothing like two weeks in a row. Nothing like two weeks, yeah. And that's kind of like the the hoot owl regulations I think they implement in Montana and some of the West. Right. Where you see the same things and it's pretty much, yeah, it's just what you have to do. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like, and like you said earlier, I mean, the early mornings, late evenings are some of the best times anyways, That so it probably wasn't that big of a deal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the, uh, exactly. And, you know, the, like all the Atlantic salmon rivers, you know, if they get to a certain temperature, they close them right away. 
So there's there's a lot of people paying more attention to those kind of rivers than they are like remote brook trout rivers. So you kind yeah. of have to do it yourself. I mean, gotcha. we've, we've been stewards of this river. We've worked really, really hard. I mean, um, I heard in one of your podcasts, I believe it was one of yours, people talking about the gripping grins are like out of fact now. People don't do that anymore. Yep. We try not to do it. I mean, we try. Everyone wants to get a picture of the fish with them. I mean, you, you just can't turn them down with people paying thousands of dollars to go to these places. It's hard. But what we do is we give we give our guests the net and the yep. the guy keep takes the camera right and they keep them in the water and when everything's all set they just push their hand up under the net just lift it right in front of their face and back down in the water so we're really that's it three to four seconds out of the water and that's it yeah that's great right? we try to do that but we still you know i still get gripping grins you know some of the guides just you know it's really hard for them to just put their foot down and say, no, we're not going to do that to these people who were so excited to catch fish. And if, you know, like I said, paid a dear price in both their time and their assets yeah. to, come, to come fish. But we're trying, we, we try to very best. The whole point is that, you know, we, we've really kept the fishery in good shape and it has not, it has not failed to um, produce in the 20s yeah. years I've been there. Right. And, and are there any, you had talked about the biologists. I mean, so is there a need for like management? Are there people up there looking at this river, the rivers in Labrador saying, how are we doing? Or is it pretty much, you know, no. are you guys just kind of monitoring things? No, it's pretty much in on us. Like I said, on the coast, the Atlantic salmon rivers, they are, but not the, like the brook trout rivers. We try to just get, you know, uh, a river designated fly fishing only. Uh, that's not going to happen. You know, catch and release. That's not going to happen. It's not. Why do you think that won't happen? It's just because it's a subsistence culture. You know, people up there, you know, live on what they catch and what they shoot. And they don't really much anymore, but that's the culture, you know. And right. they're not going to deny, you know, the citizens of the uh, the residents of Newfoundland and Labrador, they're not going to deny them a chance to go put a brook rat in the freezer. And, and the, you know, we could close them, you know, uh, close the rivers to you know, uh, any, you know, anything other than, you know, fly fishing, but it's that we've tried so many of us outfitters have made the effort and it goes nowhere. So. Oh, you have tried. Right. Right. But, but good news is if, as far as our work, we're concerned, you got to have a plane <laughs> to come fish our river. So we don't get, we don't get any, you know, uh, residents coming in. We don't have anybody fishing our waters. That's not one of our guests. Gotcha. Okay. People that are closer yeah. to town do, you know, yeah. some, some of the lodge, some of the outfitters, you can get there by, you know, Sea-Doo's or on four wheelers. And so they, they've, you know, the one that I went to originally has suffered dearly because people can get there on four wheelers. Oh, right. And a uh, power line went close by and they just ride up the power line and they jump over into the river system and, of course, they just whack every fish they catch. Oh man, that's too bad. God, yeah, that's that's it. I mean, it's, so you're in one of those places, just remote enough where people can't do that, and you have to have literally a plane or yeah to get there. You need a float plane to get there, right? Yeah. When people get there, uh, arrive at the lodge, um, what does that look like? Do once once they get out the next morning, you said they get going. Do they hop in a plane from there and fly to a river and then hop in a canoe, or are right. people able to walk? Well, we have it. We have an outpost. You can't walk anywhere and fish. 
Uh, okay. You, well, you can. You, we're on a peninsula. The wind blows. So it keeps the bugs, you know, in the alders. That's why we're the camps are out on a peninsula. But, yeah, we go in boats and in, in plane from the lodge in the morning. You know, we'll have a couple of three flyouts, and the other people will get in a boat and go to the areas, the rivers that flow into the main river. Uh, you know, they'll go those by boat and uh, and further places in the in the plane, and we have boats all up and down the river. We've got a lot of freighter canoes stashed here and there. So, you know, the plane will fly and drop you off in a jump in a boat, and then you go to the different fishing holes in a boat once you get run the long distance in the plane. We have an outpost camp, which is 35 miles downriver, and it's a four-hour trip in a canoe and a 10-minute in a plane. <laughs> so most people will spend a night there and the day on either side fishing the middle part of the river, which is really productive rapids down there. So that's that's one of the flyouts, you know, it really comes in amazing. the plane there, right? Right. So on that outpost, remind us again. So you, you take, uh, describe that again, how, how you do it. This is where you're camp. Are the people camp, can they camp too on the way out there, like on a tent? No, 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 no. The, the outpost camp is a full amenity cabin that has three bedrooms, you know, a, a kitchen, a full bathroom, and a dining area. So we take four guests at a time and two guides. And we get, they go down like early in the morning. They get up and go down, fish all day. We have we fish third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth rapids from our outpost camp. So they'll go downstream or upstream and fish that day and spend the night there, get up the next day and fish the opposite way they went the day before. And at the end of the day, the plane comes and picks them up and brings them back for dinner. Gotcha. So that's kind of the way the outpost camp works. Now, if you want to stay two nights there, you can, or three nights, whatever you want. And some people don't want to spend the night at all there. Yeah. Not many, but some don't. Okay. We don't do any tents anymore. We used to do that. Remember back when we first started this talk, I talked about the culture changing. And people used to come up, and they really wanted to go do that stuff out in tents. You know, go up. We we did a lot of trips where we just— send two people in a guide and a tent and provisions up a river, one of our feeder rivers, the three rivers, and they would be gone for two, three, four days. And they'd come back and just say, I caught more fish this trip than a person has a right to catch in a lifetime. <laughs> but nobody, yeah. nobody, and I mean, nobody wants to do that anymore. Not people can afford to come there. You're right. See, you know, the people that would enjoy, <laughs> people that would enjoy that Labrador the most, probably don't have the resources to come. Yeah, at least now. right. It's now. So start a savings account. That's right. <laughs> but it's really worth going. It's on people's bucket list, like you said at the top too. And it's there for a reason. It's really a remarkable wilderness. Uh, most people come away with fishing, the fish being the third or fourth best memories. I mean, the fact that they went into this kind of, of a, a true wilderness and I believe it or not, it's not something that consciously happens, but they make it a, a week and they survive it. You know, it's like something I can't quite describe well enough. I'm I'm actually writing a book about my all the stories from Labrador. And it's something nice. that I've struggled with trying to, to put this. It's something that you can feel and see in people's eyes around the dinner table. But there is a deep satisfaction in having come up to you know, a real, a true wilderness. I mean, it, I'm, I'm talking about, like I said, you don't see anybody else and there's danger. There's danger there. Yeah. 
What what are the da- I mean there is obviously dangerous stuff can happen. I mean right. what is the biggest danger up there? Well, that any kind of medical facilities are a long ways away. Oh right. A plane can't fly at night. So if something happens at night, you're out of luck. Uh there's there's not really any animals. I mean there's bears, but the bears, you know, we've only had two close encounters with a black bear in the 26 years we've been there, and that was these stupid 4-year-old male bears that are that are are horny and not old enough to attract a mate of a mate. Oh right, and they just right. get pissed off, just like kind of like yeah. humans. <laughs> sure, and like a <laughs> year old, you know. Anyway, yeah, right. Uh, but it's it's really that you know a slip and a fall. Uh, yeah, and just a sense the how old everything is, how ancient it is. Is a sense of being a place that you know humans don't usually go. So yeah, it's hard to get. To, yeah, no, it is right. That's that's one of the features, and you know, like I said, the it's just the camaraderie that they have there, and the like-minded people, and not to brag, but <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to say I don't mean to sound cruel when I say this, but I've learned to read between the lines of emails really well over twenty-six years. Oh right, kind of know. Who, kind of people who would really enjoy being there and people who wouldn't. So right. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that we're book solid for the foreseeable future. And I don't have to worry about filling spaces. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. What is just so we know kind of roughly what, what would a trip up there cost if you did have openings in the next few years? It's uh, the trip. The actual trip itself is $7,200 plus a fifteen percent tax. It's like eighty five hundred bucks. Yeah, eighty five hundred. And then you got a, probably another uh, three or four thousand dollars in travel and gratuities and probably buying some gear or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to yeah, cost yeah. ten or twelve thousand dollars to come up there for a week. Yeah, that's it. Perfect. No, and I think that that's like you said. Yeah, maybe some people. And we've done some all episodes all over the place. You know, we've had episodes like the dirt bag, the bum diary, people who, right. you know, literally are doing these trips to New Zealand on no money. Right, um, exactly. but there's also people listening now that have plenty of money, and they're just like your your clients, and you know this is something. In fact, I want to give a shout out. Uh, we're going to take it out here pretty quick, uh, Robin. But I want to give a quick shout out to our. This is our listener shout out segment. Uh, Dick Sargent is one of those guys. He's traveling all around. He listens to all the podcasts, and he always he emails me and lets me know like, hey, thinking about this, you know. And so this is going to be an episode I think he will love to hear about because he's done Alaska. He's done a lot of these places. I'm not sure if he's done this, but I just want to say this is presented by the um, uh, Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. Bo uh, is doing some great stuff out there. We're going to be heading out to his place uh, this next year. And uh, and I wanted to get, check with you. So, you know, as far as, you know, your shows, it sounds like, is that something you don't do anymore going out to any of these shows? I know there's the fly fishing shows you mentioned, Denver. Do you guys still do that sure. or people? I did Bo's show the first two years, I think. The first two oh, years. Yeah. In Virginia, right? Yeah, and I don't go back to it just because I don't even know why I should. And he, he I see him at the shows, and I see him around, and I know Bo well. And yeah, you know, oh, you know Bo, cool. And I really should, but yeah. uh, no, I do. I do the Marlboro show in Massachusetts, yeah, because that's where I lived for all the time. I'm close in Vermont, and I do the New Jersey show uh, at the fly fishing show, and then I go out to the Denver show, and. Right. I've done them in Chicago and in Detroit. Detroit has a great show with a yeah. Child Unlimited chapter, puts on a super show there. And 
And there's one in Minneapolis that I used to do too. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't do too many shows anymore. Uh, I do them just because, it, you know, I keep my ear to the track of the business to see old friends. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really need the book anymore. Fortunately, you know, that's, that was, you know, believe me, I don't take it for granted at all because I worked hard for 15 years. Sure. You know, struggling. I mean, you know, yep. and, uh, put the time in and, but finally that we built the brand and you know but it takes it takes a long time and yeah. uh yeah i hear you anyway. that's right. it yeah the shows are fun I, I enjoy the shows just for like you said the same thing seeing seeing people meet new people things like that um and we're gonna do a quick little rapid fire to get out of here uh robin so and you still have a few minutes to just wrap this up real quick sure okay good good well we'll do this really quick and we'll hop out of here so you know, we're not, we didn't cover a ton on the fishing, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, you know, there where they can meet with, you know, talk to you and we might even, you know, down the line, you know, not sure, maybe the new owners, we might talk to them about getting them on to go more into the tips and tricks, but what would be the rod? Somebody's coming up there. Are people mostly bringing their own gear and what is kind of the rod weight that you recommend? Six, seven and eight weight rods, six and sevens for six for the smaller creeks, and the quiet days and dry fly fishing, a seven and eight for the bigger water, windy days, big streamers. But six, seven, or eight, any of those will do. Okay. And are are you guys using, is this mostly like dry fly dry, or dry lines? Yes, we mostly use all floating line. But a sink tip does come in handy, especially if you're a nymph fisherman. If you're good, you know, with a lot of the new nymphing techniques, those are deadly. I mean, the people who can fish a nymph well catch more fish than anybody else, not everywhere else in the world, but in our rivers the too. Nymphs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and for me, I'm always thinking it, everybody's different, but I would, you know, getting a big fish would be obviously cool. But just like you said, with the streamers, maybe the top water stuff, I mean, that would be epic right. to be able to, right? Exactly. Is that what a lot of people think? People, yeah. That's what most people fish. And, and, and they're successful. But like I said, if you're a killer nut fisherman, you're going to do really well. Yeah. And what about a, fly, a flyer too? Like you mentioned that you never know, but what was, so now we're in kind of November. So we've already had the season. What was the big fly this last season? Or was there, was there a few? Was a white gurgler. Oh, the gurgler. Right. White and purple gurgler. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. They just, they just can't seem to, to. And what are you imitating? What are those fish things going on when you're stripping a gurgler? Some kind of a, mam- a small mammal struggling on the surface of the water, or maybe a big fly, maybe, uh, you know, a, a dragonfly, or I don't know. But uh, it, it's crazy. They just, I, I think it's mostly mice, you know. I, I've never seen lemmings and voles. It's supposedly a lemming hatch like every seven years. Oh, right. Yeah. Where there's like so many of them, they all fall in the water. But uh, I've never, I've never seen that uh, at all. I've never seen a. You know, uh, a whole uh, right. whatever right word. Yeah, population, a whole uh, yeah. right explosion, explosion, explosion of lemmings. But I hear there is one, and I know that they love them because most people, when people come up and they walk in the dining room the first time, they say, "I want to catch." Point to a big fish mounted on the wall. They said, "I want to catch one of those on a mouse." So yeah. everyone has got the micing the mice. bug. Coming to Labrador, right? There is something about the micing, yeah. The mic. Okay. And what about somebody listening now? Maybe they're going to be doing a trip with you in 20, 2026 or something like that. Is there, you know, to learn more about this, like how to do it and things like that, tips and tricks? Is there a resource you recommend or how, how do you, where do you send people to get them ready for this? Well, that's a good question. I usually send them emails with a lot of the information, but we, you know, we do have, we do have, um, 
a story, uh, stories that I can point them to online. Okay. You know, to tell basically, uh, I, w- I wish I could say that I would, they could buy my book, but yeah, I, it's not even close to being ready. Well, to- the cool thing about this is, is this will be out for years. So yeah, it eventually will be, and people can check it out. What is there a title? Um, I've got a working title. Where's Labrador? Question mark. Oh yeah. That's Where's my Labrador? working title. Right. That's the book, the book just real quick is an answering the seven or eight major questions that I've listened to for 26 years, but not answering them like I just answered your how what how big a rod to take. Answering the, all those questions by telling stories. Yeah. So it's a book full of stories that I've lived, heard uh while while being up there. Yeah. Kind of like we did today, right on this podcast. We we kind of didn't get into the but the stories are what it's all about, really, at the end of the day. Exactly. And people can glean what they will from the stories. And I think it's it's not hard to find out. It's not hard to find the answers to your questions in the stories. Yeah, the stories, yeah. And, and like you said, it's not if they go up to your area, it's not going to be that hard to catch a fish. They're probably going to catch some fish. Yes, they're going to catch yeah. fish. Nice. Okay. All right, Robin. Well, I think we'll, we'll leave it there for uh, for this one, and uh, and we will send everybody out to uh, trophylabrador.com if they have questions. The Three River Lodge, and um, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on today and sharing all your uh, you know all the stories and knowledge and wisdom here, and uh, definitely appreciate your time today. It was a pleasure to meet you on the phone and to talk about Labrador. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.